Luke 19, verse 36 through 39. We're jumping in. Can you start the, yeah, start the clock for me? Perfect. Luke 19. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. A key thought, just as we think about Palm Sunday, Jesus is weeping while the audience is cheering. There's a parade, and there's floats, if you would imagine, and the crowds are shouting and cheering the name of Jesus, Hosanna in the highest, and yet Jesus is weeping over the tragedy, over lost opportunity. An opportunity has been lost and he's weeping while the saints are rejoicing. I find that extremely important to understand anytime you think about Palm Sunday. I remember a few years ago, it was probably around six or seven years ago or so, we were just starting the church and I read this passage, had read it before, of course, but as I read it, it just jumped out at the pages. It was one of those kind of aha moments. And ever since then, God has taken this verse and he's just put it inside of my heart, deep in my soul. And every time there's a Palm Sunday that kind of resurfaces, this thought comes to my mind. The thought that I just told you, the thought that enters my mind every time I see on the calendar Palm Sunday is this thought. Jesus is weeping while the audience is cheering. And it just brings me back kind of to the place of the Father's heart. Here we are singing and rejoicing. And certainly, certainly, the Lord loves to hear his people praise and sing. And of course, absolutely, we, we call for that. But I just, I just remember the Father's heart even in the midst of that. That his heart always has been and always will be over the lost. That's what Jesus said, for I came to seek and save that which is lost. It's an interesting thought to think about a king going in on a parade and people are chanting his name and yet he's weeping at the same time versus just accepting the praises. It reminds you of who his heart is for and what he's after, which is why I think we read what we read in John chapter 4, which is the passage of scripture I want to focus on today and I titled the message, Communing with God. Communing with God. So John chapter 4, it's a famous story. I've taught on this many times. And there's only one question that I'm going to get to at the very end of this. We're not going to unpack the detail of it. This text is rich in context, and I know that there's a lot of stuff I'm going to skip over. Uh, But I just want to get to one question uh, at the end. And then uh, I'll reveal to you something I believe that God's calling our church to do in this week. All right. So Jesus is with his disciples John chapter 4, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We'll put it up on the screen as well. If you have your iPhone, use your iPhone. Here's where it goes. All right, now he had to go through Samaria. If you have your Bible, or if you take little notes, if you underline stuff, you can highlight that. If you have the notes in front of you, the fill-ins, maybe just write had to go, circle that. That means he had to. And again, keep, keep, 
keep somehow this Palm Sunday thing in your backdrop of his heart weeping over the lost. Remember, lost, we defined it last week, but lost people are unbelievers or unsafe people. That's typically what people think about when they think about lost people in context. But don't forget, lost people can also be saved people. Saved people can be lost as well. And um, so just remember that as the, the kind of backdrop of this in your heart. That way you kind of get the fullness of this. So now he had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go? Well, just consider his heart, and we'll find out. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. So you're a Jew. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Not only that, you're a man. Men don't talk to women like we're little, we're beneath thee. But here you are talking with me. She's shocked by this. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and salvation, by the way, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. If you want circle circle living water, you could circle living water. That's important. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this, quote-unquote, living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from himself, as he did also his sons and his livestock? She's kind of confused at the scene, at the scenario. She doesn't get it. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water. That's also important. I know I didn't put it in bold, but it's also important that he's speaking of some kind of water that goes inside of her. And if this water gets inside of her, it will absolutely pour out of her. It's what goes inside of you and then comes out of you. That's important to understand. And you'll see why later on, in just a minute. The water I give them becoming the Father's spring of water welling up into eternal life, he says. You can remember in the conversation, she's talking about physical water, so he gets a little confused. Why is this guy talking about eternal life? The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. I have to keep coming back here to draw water. So Jesus is speaking of a spiritual water when the woman thinks this is literal water. I want you to understand that the woman is so focused on the physical that she doesn't even see the spiritual. She is spiritually lost. Physically present, getting water from a well, normal human behavior, something you should do. She's got a lot of normal things about her in human life, but spiritually blind. Spiritually blind lost, and doesn't see it. Now, you remember that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go, and he's talking with a woman who he's aware is spiritually blind, spiritually lost, and she doesn't get what he's talking about. She doesn't see it, and yet Jesus remains in the conversation with her, which helps you and I understand a very important characteristic about God. We gather 
to know God better. It's something we understand about his attribute or his character. One of his attributes is patience. He's patient with the woman. He doesn't give up on the conversation. He remains in the conversation with her, as we'll see. And so he continues in the conversation because he wants to maybe open this woman's eyes spiritually. He wants her to be found because she's lost and she doesn't see. And so Jesus continues in the conversation and he begins to turn the conversation to help her to see who she is. So Jesus is after, I want you to get to know me. So watch what he does in order for the woman to come to know him. He says, go call your husband and come back. Now pause and just hit period for a second. Okay? You got to remember his heart is after the lost. His heart is weeping over those that don't know him, lost opportunity. And here he's meeting with this woman who's spiritually lost. And he wants her to be found. And so he makes the statement, go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, she says, I have no husband. Now, Jesus is aware of that, right? If Jesus is God and he's all-knowing, he knew the response of this woman. So what's he trying to do? Is he trying to like beat her up, make fun of her, you know, prove a point? No. So she replies, you'll see that in a second. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. She says, sir, the woman said, I can see your prophet. Eyes begin to open. All of a sudden, there begins to be an understanding. So why does Jesus call this woman out on her five divorces and then her current husband? And you kind of, certainly in the context of what it seems, we don't know why these divorces or separations happened, but there seems to be this consistent pattern. You can imagine the pain that would have resurfaced in her. And maybe some of those were her own doing. Maybe some weren't. We don't really know. But, but it seems, why would God resurface some of this inside of her? You also have to remember that God hates divorce, by the way. He hates it. And so maybe he's resurfacing something inside of her, the way she's been living her life. Again, just something seems to be off. And Jesus knew that a true conversion must begin with conviction. In order for this woman to come to really get to know me, there has to be a, a moment of understanding of the necessity of repentance. Before there can be a conversion, there has to be some element of conviction. Before I, before I know the Savior, I need to know that I need to be saved from something. If I don't know that I need to be saved from something, then I don't feel like I really need a Savior. And so Jesus is after to help her open up her like spiritually blindness. He wants her to see And so he has to go after the thing that's inside of her that kind of convicts her. Not condemns her, but convicts her enough that she'd begin to open her eyes towards who this man is. Jesus had to deal with the sin before she could experience repentance. 
I've got to remove the sin from you. I've got to get you to turn from the sin so that you can come to know me so then you can actually have this life that I want for you. Okay. And so she says, I can see that you're a prophet. Now she does something that most people do once they're convicted by the Holy Spirit. And I use the word convicted. Now hope, just stay with me on this so you understand. You've sat in a service before, maybe you sit in a gathering, maybe today's your first time, whatever. But you, for most of us, you probably listen into a service or sat in a service or something like that. And, and, and you kind of know what you should do, right? You, you, you sit there and you're like, I know what I should do. I'm convicted by that. It's not like guilt is beating you up necessarily, hopefully, or shame isn't, because that's not what Jesus came to do. But there's certainly a Holy Spirit, there's a, there's a conviction. I know I should be doing this. I know that I should probably pay more attention to this. And there's a conviction. Or something uh, inside, or the Holy Spirit, or he speaks, and normally it's not audible, at least for most people, but it's a nudging, a sense of, I need to make a change, I need to make a shift. And whenever the Holy Spirit begins to convict, or even God uses somebody else to convict you of something you know you need to be doing, the tendency of humans is to do the first thing that Adam and Eve did whenever they sinned. Run and hide. Dodge the conversation. Or put some kind of defense as to why this is happening. So the woman is engaged in this conviction moment, and verse 20 She tries to go to another conversation, and she says in verse 20, Oh, by the way, our ancestors worshipped at this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. To which Jesus, I think, as a man, is going, what just happened there? And men can relate to this when you're in a conversation with your spouses, right? (laughs) What? 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 What happened? In our home, we call it sidetracking. And I'm like, whoa, sidetrack. Hold on a second. So we have this phrasing now between me and Carissa where if I call it sidetrack, and so I find myself often, sidetrack. Well, hold on. Whoa, that was five things you just asked me. Let's take one at a time. Yes, man, can you relate to this? So the woman goes to this sidetrack, and Jesus, instead of drawing her back, to the divorce. He's aware of what she's doing. She's running from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. She's going to have to go there and deal with that conversation. Too much pain. Too much to deal with. I don't want to have that conversation right now. So she turns it. So she tries. But she's meeting with Jesus who knows how to handle every conversation very well. So Jesus responds back, verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you, circle this, do not know. See, you don't know me. Now, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now this time has come, he says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So he begins to point to himself that this spirit, this God, is him, Then, right there in the flesh, he hasn't come out yet and said it fully, 
but it begins to shift her thinking about how and who she worships. And then she responds back, back, verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah. So I know. I have the knowledge of God. Like I, I, meaning I have knowledge about God. I know about God. Think about how many of you have said the same thing, but you didn't really know him. Maybe some of you today say you know him or you know about him would be a better way of saying it because you know about him, you know what he did, but you may not even know why he really did it. But you know about him, but you don't really know him. And that's where this woman is. I know that Messiah called Christ. He's coming at some point, she says. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then we see a shift in the story. The woman knows about Christ, but she hasn't met him yet. Knows about him, but doesn't have a relationship with him. But is in conversation with him and doesn't even see it. So at some point in her life, I want you to think about this, someone had once told her about this Christ, this Messiah. Maybe she read it in the Torah. Maybe she came across it. Somebody read it to her. At some point, somebody told her about this Messiah that would come. So she had knowledge of him, but she didn't know him. Then Jesus in verse 26 declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He just tells her straightforward. Dealt with your sin. I know you try and change the conversation. I'll go with you there. And I'll use why you try to change the conversation to teach you about me. And I am the one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the one that you've heard about. Something happened in this woman. Something shifted. Something changed. It says, then Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She leaves her water jar, which I think is absolutely important and begs me to ask a question. It kind of prompts me, I should say, to ask a question. Before I give you the question, I want you to see what happens in verse 39. If you go down to verse 39, it says, Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world actually quite impressive when you think about it. In the beginning of this conversation, this woman knows obviously very little about him, but maybe knows about him, heard about him. And then in the conversation, when he says, I am he, he introduces himself to her. Something in the woman, conviction of sin, repentance, shifts and changes. Eyes are opened I have just been with the king. I've just met Jesus. And she leaves what she came for, the water jar, this important water that was needed physically, but because she was so filled spiritually, she forgot about the physical thing that she was thirsty for. 
because she was filled so much with his spirit, I can kind of like neglect the physical because I'm so full with the spiritual. Scripture teaches that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. When Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days, fasting and praying, and Satan shows up when he's hungry, Jesus uses that same verse and he says, man doesn't live by bread, man lives by the word of God. I just think this woman in that moment must have experienced some closeness, some moment with Jesus that it filled her with this living water that she forgot or left maybe even intentionally in such a hurry to go and share with somebody about the man that she had just met. Let me just encourage you with a thought today, and I hope that maybe it convicts you, maybe. If it doesn't convict you, then maybe it just encourages you to keep going and keep doing what you're already maybe doing. But maybe it convicts you, and that's okay. Conviction's okay. It convicts me too. It says, and I just wrote this statement to help bring us together here. The result of knowing God's love for us. This woman finds out how much Jesus Loves her. He comes and sits with her, which is not normal in society for that to happen. This guy comes and spends time with her. But she realizes, here's Jesus in the flesh. Here he is. And he has just come to me, an outsider, a marginalized, a woman at that, a Samaritan woman at that, who nobody else wants to hang around. And he just came after me. I was lost. Now I'm found. The result of knowing God's love, we see in this woman. And then she begins to turn her life over to him. The result of this is telling those who are lost about him. She couldn't help it. Now, let me give you the illustration so that you understand it. And you'll go, yeah, I get that. One of the first things we do when we fall in love or we are in a relationship with somebody that we, um, we you know, love or are excited about is we tell somebody. Isn't that true? Like we, you tell the, the person, you tell your friends, I met this girl last night. Oh, my gosh. And you know, or whatever, or maybe that you get engaged, and lady, the first, ladies, the first thing you did when you got engaged, you put the ring, what's the first thing you did? You made calls to girlfriends, to families, maybe, you went like this, like, oh, and then everywhere you went for like that first, you know, before you get, you're like, well, oh, sorry, and then you sign with your left, even though you're right-handed, and, uh, (laughs) you know, true, you wanted somebody to ask, yes, ladies, like, you wanted somebody to talk, take notice, you know, and just, you, you, you want people to know, right? And then the men did the same. They may not have the ring on, but when you first fell in love, you were like, oh, show them, show them, show them, you know, and, and, right? And you tell people stories, and, and then you get to know people. And one of the first questions when you're meeting people in your neighborhoods, and a lot of you maybe moved, relocated to Florida, maybe moved here recently, and you're meeting with people, just watch how many times, how'd you guys meet, right? How'd, how'd you meet? Oh, that's how long you've been married. How'd you meet? And then naturally as humans, we want to know about those love stories. How'd you meet? How did it happen? What was the proposal like? How did he do it? You know, or how did she do it? Maybe she did it. You know, you know, it's like we want to know these things. 
about love. And then, and then with social media, right, we, we go public with this stuff in a relationship. Status changed, right? And we want, we want everybody to know that, you know, and then we'll take photos and put it on our profile. It used to be just us, you know, now it's, you know, two people. And we want, the, we want people to know about this, yes? Right? So the result of knowing that we are loved and us loving someone else is telling others. That's how we respond to, like, normal circumstances like that. Having a child, we do the same thing. There's this child that comes from the womb, and, and it's, like, exciting, and, and there's so much love happening. And if you're a first-time parent, you understand this. You know, the first child comes out, because the third child comes out, and you're like, we know what you're going to do, so we don't really care. But the first child, <laughs> the first child comes out, you're like, oh, this is the most precious thing in the world. And then, you know, photos and taking people, and, sharing, and you pay thousands of dollars, right? Like a lot of money, you have somebody take photos, and oh, and, you, and then by the fourth child, no photos. We have four children, I'm telling you. Our, Nathan, we're taking like an iPhone if he's lucky, you know. Like Emery, we have like me, like holding her, like my first daughter. We have the picture of like me holding her up like this. The second one, a little less, little, it makes sense for those who have, yeah, it's just. But, uh, but the first child is like exciting, you know. There's this passion, there's this love. We're showing, showing this child off. Because when you experience love, in that way. And you give love in that way. The result happens every time. Got to tell somebody. You're in high school, college, adulthood, doesn't matter. It's the same. Me and so-and-so are going out. Me and so-and-so are together. He proposed. She said, yes, we got married. We have a child. We do it all the time. Naturally, as humans, this is how we respond. It's what we do when we're in love. Do you know that kind of love with Jesus? I wouldn't have to, as a pastor, ever tell you to go evangelize if you just knew his love and you love him. I wouldn't have to market this and ask you to please go invite somebody. I think one of the reasons why you find moments where we have to encourage churches to invite because maybe you've forgotten who loves you. Or maybe you didn't know that he loves you. And just like in any relationship, as a relationship goes on, you neglect, which we talked about in part two, part three, about first love. And my hope for you is that you'd be reminded of his love for you and that your love for him. And I know if you fall in love with him, then the amount of people that will come to a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ here through this church body would be too numerous to count. If only we would be like this woman, I'm encouraged 
like just tell somebody about what Christ has done and be reminded of his love for you. This woman becomes an incredible missionary for Christ without ever going to any theological training. No seminary, just one meeting with Jesus changes everything. One real meeting with Jesus. And not just because of what she had heard, because she had heard about God, but now she had met him. Many people know about God, but haven't met him. And so they don't feel the need to go and tell anybody. I went to church, I know about God, but I don't tell people about God because maybe you haven't met him. Maybe you haven't met him. Because I'm telling you from personal experience and through God's word, when you actually meet him, reality is, the result of that is, you will tell as many people as you can about him. What caused the woman to leave the jar of water and tell others about Jesus? I told you one question. And the answer, I believe, is communion with Jesus. Communion with Jesus. And he said, why did I use the word communion? Because I was trying to be really cool. I don't know, but just hear me out. I, I just read the definition and it stuck with me, okay? Communion. A close relationship with someone in which feelings and thoughts are exchanged. That's the dictionary according to Cambridge. And I just had this picture of intimacy with God. I could have chosen a lots of words, like intimacy with Jesus, time with Jesus, closet time with Jesus, praying with Jesus. But I knew if I used the word prayer, it would sound so redundant to you that you might just think, oh, that's where I go talk to God all the time. No, no, communion with, with God. This woman had a very intimate conversation with Jesus. When you're talking about five divorces, that's really up close and personal. And so I thought, man, as we get into this Easter season, of course, in every church, it's just like hoping and praying, come on, go invite, go and bring in the lost, go bring in the lost. Like, this is a very common thing in churches, by the way. It's no secret. I mean, every church gets ready for Easter Sunday because it's the time people are considering coming to church. So go invite, go invite, go invite. And I was just sitting there thinking, man, how could I get you to invite? And so I thought, I think the best way is just to encourage you to go be with Jesus. You go be with Jesus this week. You commune with him. You get up close and personal. I'll never have to tell you to invite a person again. The only question will be, is will you commune with him? Are you willing? Are you like willing to be that risky? Because I'm telling you, when you go commune with Jesus, he's going to get real up close and personal with you. And he will... So caution, he will start with your sin. He will begin to gut out all the things that separate you from him, which is what sin does. He will mold you like clay. But when he gets to the root of it and you begin to experience his love and his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy and the life that he's planned for you, 
you'll come out of your moment in time with him ready to tell the freaking world. I know, I use freaking the adjective just to help, I don't know, pump it up a little bit more. <laughs> Communicators will do anything to try to convince you, encourage you, inspire you. All right, so I want to give you some practical things to do here. I know that some of you may not have moments of communion with God. Real time, real intimacy. I know some of you do. And so for some of you, we're like, hey, I do that already. Sounds great. Keep doing what you're doing. But for some of you, guesses, chances are, this is all brand new to you. All right, so I'm going to give you my, what I do in my communion with God. This is not a model that I'm saying you should model. This is not a formula that I think you should like put into play. This is just what I do to give you a picture. And I'm sure I could grab several of you up here and, and it would all look a little different, but the heart of it's the same. So I want to give you some practical things to do that you might need to consider this week as you commune with God. Remember, if you go to the definition of it, which I put in your notes, is to be in a relationship with somebody where thoughts and feelings are exchanged. God's thoughts and feelings about you and your thoughts and feelings about him. I am not asking you to go into your prayer closet to make a lot of requests. I'm encouraging you to go alone with the Lord, commune with him, where he can tell you some things and you tell him some things. Do you see the difference? It's so, so important that you see the difference. So potential communion with God may look like this. Number one, start with thank you. Start with praise. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name, right? Start with thank you. Start with gratitude. When I start my prayer time, I'm telling you, I'm so tempted to get into all kinds of requests, but when I put pause and I just begin to try to express gratitude and I begin to thank him. And when I just thank him, I encourage you, I oftentimes don't, and I, and I get there in these moments where I'll say, thank you, Lord, for kids. Thank you for, and it, it sounds more surface, but I have to kind of keep going until I know my heart is truly in a place of gratitude. And one of the tricks, I guess, that I use in my mind to get myself there is I go back to where I was before I knew him. And I begin to think about where I used to be and the things that I have done. And my mind goes back there, not to like beat myself up over again, but to remind myself where I came from and how I am where I am today. And when I get my heart there, and this takes a few minutes, it takes some time, all of a sudden I can sense it, there's a heart of gratitude now I'm ready to move on to step two. Step two is surrender. And every time I commune with God, there's a moment of surrender. When I just come out of the gates to start spitting off my request, I know that my heart is not really in the proper position that it needs to be in to receive the will of God. Because prayer is where you go to get his will, not where you go to deliver yours. Jesus already knows what you want. So, so to properly put my heart in the position to hear him, I've got to surrender my plan. I'm telling you, communion with God will in, invite surrender. Lord, whatever you want, seriously, whatever you want. And you can say it out of your lips, but you'll know when your heart's there when it's not. My encouragement is go there until your heart truly is surrendered. I give it all away, whatever you want me to do. After surrender is repentance. 
honestly, in most of my communion times with God, my intimacy time with God, I'm telling you there's a form of repentance and moments of repentance. And I do it openly and freely. And repentance is a change the way I think, which is ultimately why you go to prayer anyways. That's what happened in the woman. She changed the way she thought about God. Everything changed for her. And the way she thought changed. So don't go with your theology. God is a way better theologian than you'll ever be. So go ahead and be like, I don't really know this whole thing. Help me. If you go with pride, I'm telling you, Scripture teaches God doesn't always listen to your prayers. He knows if I sit here and talk with you, I'm not even penetrating the heart. So go with surrender. Go with repentance. Lord, change the way I think. Change the way that I see this. And if you need to, confess the sin to the Lord and allow him to forgive that sin and bring freedom and and peace in, in that place. So repentance is normally part of my vocabulary. And then worship. Now, we'll put some bands up on the screen. If you have your phone, take a photo of it. If we have some, you just take a photo of that. Now, these are just bands that I listen to and just different music that's out there. Because some of you I know practically are like, I don't even know what worship bands are or singers. So I just put this up there practically for you. I'm not promoting these necessarily, like, but these are ones that are on my playlist oftentimes. And I'm sure some of you are like, what about so-and-so? She's really good. And, Philip. and I know you're all big fans. I'm just saying for generally. Um, but I put on some worship music, a song or two or three. And, uh, and sometimes I have, a, I have a prayer playlist that has about 100 songs or so on it probably. And so just and I, as I hear a song, I add it to that prayer playlist. And I begin to worship God in my closet by myself, singing and crying out to him. And this is typically how I get into this kind of close relationship with the Lord and talk with him. Number five is will. I desire his will. I begin to seek his will. God, what verse do you want me to read? God, what thing, what's going on? Like, I begin to ask him for his will. Show me your will. What do you want me to do? And it's sometimes in a, it's in like a big question. Sometimes it's just like today. Sometimes it's, I mean, it's just all over. It depends, but his will. And I have found when you go to the Lord seeking just one answer, he'll give you 25. So don't just say, well, I'm going to find out today what you want to do with this job, you know? He'll use that question to really get to the stuff that you really need to talk about. Typically, the things you really need to talk about, you don't ask them about. If you found this to be true, if you, if you seek the Lord, you'll find this to be true. The thing that you want to talk about, he doesn't need to talk about. He wants to talk about the things you're ignoring. Hence the woman at the well. It takes time. Number six, his word. His word will always be involved. Scripture, his word, I've never heard the audible voice of God. I've heard nudges and felt nudges and the Holy Spirit whispers and things like that maybe, but I've never heard an audible voice. Most often when God speaks to me, it's through his word. I I get a gentle whisper, a nudge to read a certain book in the Bible or a certain chapter or a certain verse. And I begin searching for it. Sometimes I just take the Bible and I begin to kind of search for it and a topic, or I get on Google and start a topic that I'm dealing with, a question, and all of a sudden I begin to search and search, and then sure enough, in enough searching, I find what it is the Lord I know is wanting to, to speak to me. So it takes time. Number seven, I write. I always write down what I feel like the Lord is telling me. I write it down, and it allows me to process things more slowly of what it is the Lord's wanting me to do. So I end up writing down oftentimes what I'm praying or what I'm seeking, or I write down the verses he told me to read, or, or I write down certain things that are coming to my mind. 
This is what a typical kind of communion time with God for me sounds like. And let me just tell you, for me, most cases, it takes at minimum, at minimum, 20 to 30 minutes, by the way. That's like absolute minimum. For me personally, in my life, I, I typically take somewhere between two to three hours. Now, I know some of you are like, how do you do that? And I get it because different jobs and change. But I'm telling you, a lot of this happens between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. And then after kids stuff and they get sent off to school, it's another 8 a.m. to like another 10 a.m. And I know not all of you have that window, but I'm, 6 to 7 is blocked. My wife works full-time, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., minimum an hour. I mean, most cases. But I understand for some of you, you may not be there. I'm just saying you're going to need at least 30 minutes is what I'm trying to say. You should try to carve out about an hour if you can. If you think you're going to have this amazing communion time with God in three minutes, man, you're an amazing human. I sleep for the first five minutes of prayer. Anybody? It just takes me a while. Does that make sense? All right. Here's why I share this with you. Again, communing with God. I know if you communion with God, you'll tell other people about God. So that's where I'm focusing and trying to lead you to. Go commune with him, and you'll do the rest. And you'll tell somebody, and you'll invite. If you don't bring one person back, chances are you didn't really commune with him. Or you didn't tell somebody to go meet him, even. Not to bring him back here. Go tell somebody in a different state, a friend, a family member. And they go to a church in their country, in their city, or their state. You know, whatever that may be. Not just bring them necessarily back here. Necessarily. Chances are you didn't commune. I'm telling you, if you commune with God, the result of it is telling somebody about him. It just happens when you really commune with him. I trust that. I see that in scripture. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, down here, down front, we'll invite the band forward. We're going to close out here. And um, so uh, 5,000 minutes of prayer and fasting this week. And I want to invite you to do this with me. I've already begun. And you'll see my initials are there from 8 a.m. until right now. We're going to fast and pray this week. We're doing 5,000 minutes of prayer and fasting. So I'm going to answer some questions pretty rapidly here. What is fasting? Fasting is when you starve the physical to feed the spiritual. It's exactly what happened to the woman at the well. All of a sudden, the spiritual was filled and the physical was neglected. So when we fast, we starve the physical to feed the spiritual. Typically, fasting is defined as abstaining from food, sometimes drink, for a designated period of time. It's how uh, actually the morning meal got its name, just so you know. We naturally fast when we sleep. If you want to know where breakfast comes from, it comes from break our fast. Some of you are like, I never knew that. Mind blown. And that's the one thing you're going to get from the message, and that scares me the most. (laughs) Did you know that breakfast kids would break fast? Let's go back to the title, folks, right? All right. Commune with God, okay? Hey, when you commune with God, you find out things like this. It's pretty incredible. You're like, oh, breakfast, I don't know. The sacrifice of fasting is a way to express our earnest on a matter where we can express our deep devotion. Fasting is not a genie in the bottle type of thing, you know, where you get what you want. It's really where you encounter God. You say, God, I'm desperate for you. Every hunger pain that you might experience reminds you of the purpose for the fast and ultimately drives you towards a fresh focus on the Lord. Prayer is a ready weapon in the spiritual battle, Ephesians 6, you can go read that. And fasting helps to focus prayer and give it resolve. 
And I thought about this illustration. Fasting does to our spirits what a boxer does in training. A boxer who's about to enter a fight first goes through a season of training. They diet, they work out, they give up other activities. I remember a line from the movie Rocky, my favorite Rocky series, like one of my favorite movies. And he says, you know, in his preparation, Adrian comes to him and starts to try to give him kisses. He's like, women weaken legs. That's what Mick said. Like, remember Mick said that to Rocky? Do you remember that? It's like, women weaken legs. Don't engage with women while you're training. The point is, boxers will go through rigorous training to prepare for a fight. And I believe our church is in a fight. I believe the kingdom of God, of course, is in a fight. That's true. Spiritual warfare is real. And when we fast, we prep our spirits for that fight. The greater the fight, the greater we need to focus. And our church, to make it even more practical, is in a fight. Found out weeks ago, I told you that we haven't, we're being removed from here. I won't get into the details of that. I already have. That's not by our choice, I will say. We haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing against us. I will say it's a spiritual thing. And uh, we have seven weeks remaining in this building and no new location has been surfaced. And yet our church is growing every single week. Our leadership team is growing every single week. God is moving in a mighty way through our church family. And there's a direct correlation there that just when God is doing breakthroughs, Satan is trying to break up. And I trust that we will prevail through God's mighty power. But he invites us and tells us and encourages us to fast and to pray and join him in on that fight. And your prayers make a difference. So pray with me and fast with me in this season. A couple of biblical passages of fasting. If you want to have your phone out, take a photo of this. Nehemiah 1.4, Esther 4, 15 through 16. Anna, amazing woman in scripture. She prays and fasts all the time. She's 85 years old, still praying and fasting. You can go read about her. Luke 2.37. Matthew 6.16 through 18. So many scripture verses on fasting. So it's certainly supported in scripture. 5,000 minutes of prayer and fasting. Here's the breakdown. We're doing a sunrise to sunset, which is a Jewish fast. Jewish have two different types of fast. They'll have a full fast and they'll have a minor fast. So we're partaking in what would be a, technically a Jewish minor fast, which is uh, sun up to sundown. So it's about a 12-hour window. So we're going 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And down here, down front, I have 30-minute time slots from 8 a.m. all the way to 8 p.m. I'm asking you to come forward to sign your initials on spots that you and your family, if you can double up sign. And so I'm just asking the whole chart be full before you leave. And then it's a total slots, 168 slots are on there. So if you add all the math up, it equals 5,040 minutes of prayer. And we'll go from Sunday through Saturday. If you want to fast the whole time, however you feel led to fast, encourage you to fast, but take the 30-minute window. You might take one 30-minute window. You might take five 30-minute windows. You can take 10 30-minute windows. Totally up to you. You can double up on your signatures and then just hold yourself to your own kind of calendar that you feel. But what I'm asking you to do is pray. Say, what are we praying for? Certainly location is on our mind. Certainly that God would make a way, open the right door. But let me tell you something. That is not the focus of the fast. The focus of the fast is that you would go commune with God that you'd just go spend time with him. And I trust God will do the rest. I do not lead this church. God does. And if you just seek him, he'll take care of the rest. I trust that wholeheartedly. He'll take care of Easter. He'll take care of VBS. He'll take care of location. Our call always is to seek him. I'll never forget what Pastor Joel said, and I said it to you a while back. 
strengthening, in the journey of church planting and leading, and this is for our staff and our worship team, everybody, two things are guaranteed. He will get the glory and we will be transformed. So fasting is positioning ourselves in a way to be transformed. God, move us. Meet us. That's it. We are not praying that God would have a big Easter service. That's not it. Just go be with the Lord. Cry out to him. Let him work in your heart. And I trust him for the results. Okay, so here's how we're going to end. Invite the altar team forward, prayer team forward. And, uh, and we're here to pray with you. If you need prayer today, this is how we're going to be dismissed. So online, I apologize because it's a little unique. This is how we're going to be dismissed today. And I know it's like, well, it's kind of weird. First time guests, we'd love to meet you in a minute. We talked talk about that and kind of got through the announcements. If you have any questions, just go to Brave Central. They can answer every question. This is how we're going to be dismissed right now. I would love for you, and I know it's going to take a minute to maybe come down here. I've got two markers down here to sign. If you have a pen, you can use a pen. That's fine. And just put your names or your just initials on uh, time slots um, that you're willing to contribute to fast and pray and join with us in praying and fasting as we go into this Easter season. So I'll pray for us now. And then if you just need prayer, we're going to stay down front. We'd love to pray and fast with you. And this is how we're going to be dismissed today. It's not a sad day. It's a great day in Jesus' name. We're excited to join with our Heavenly Father in prayer and in fasting and seeking Him. Amen. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Also, certainly take these invite cards with you. That's why they're here. This is the last Sunday to go out. So take these invite cards. We paid money for these. You did. The church did, right? So go take these. Invite somebody. Bring somebody back with you next week. Uh, we hope to see you good Friday. And if you would join with us in prayer and fasting, come and sign up and, uh, and get prayed for. And so that's how I'm going to ask you to be dismissed today. I love you. God bless you. Please join me on this fast. If not, I'm going to have to do the whole thing by myself. So come join fast and pray with us. Amen. I love you. God bless you. Take care. Have a great day.